0: Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. The writer and scholar Allison Parker was surprised as she learned more and more about the activist Mary Church Terrell that no adult biography had been written about her before. It wasn't for lack of materials. Before Terrell's death in 1954, she'd negotiated to house her papers at the Library of Congress. Parker sifted through other important documents at Howard University and in the homes of family members who were willing to welcome her in. Ten years later, her book, Unceasing Militant, The Life of Mary Church Terrell, has been published by University of North Carolina Press. I talked with Parker from her home in Philadelphia via Zoom on April 29, 2021.
1: It was um, almost overwhelming because she saved every piece of paper and she actually negotiated with the Library of Congress to take her work, um, meaning her diaries, her letters, her production, because she viewed Black women's contributions to politics and um, to thought as important enough to be Uh, deemed worthy enough to be in the Library of Congress. And that's how her papers are there, is she met with the librarians and
2: got them there. What a remarkable person. I, it's such a movie, just reading the beginning part of her life, how she came to be, and then her work. Uh, If you could, for somebody who doesn't know, what would be the sort of brief biography of her? And then I want to get back to, the years you've spent mining through all the papers that she's so smart to leave behind.
1: I, I would say that she's best known as um, a woman who was a leader of the Black Women's Club movement at the turn of the century. And she was the first president of the National Association of Colored Women in 1896. And um, she started her life, however, as an enslaved baby in Memphis, Tennessee during the Civil War. And she was emancipated through by the end of the war and as were her parents. And since her parents were the children of their white enslavers, what that meant is that they had access to some loans and or gifts of money by these men who never, Freed them, but who were willing uh, to help them once uh, slavery had ended. Um, and so they became prosperous in the reconstruction period. So her father, Robert R. Church is known as, sometimes he's called the first black millionaire. I could not uh, determine that as a fact, but he was certainly very wealthy. And one of the ways that he gained wealth is that he bought property during the yellow fever pandemics, when all the whites fled from Memphis and gave up the land and he had the foresight to know that it was land worthy of purchasing. And so it was um, through that, that uh, he ended up being the developer of Beale Street. So the home of the blues um, was a place that was
2: created by her father. She certainly wasn't what we would call an entrepreneur, but she was entrepreneurial in the sense that she felt confident about speaking out, working, which women of any race at that moment in time did not necessarily feel comfortable in doing. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because that it, it clearly has to have been an innate spark that made her feel capable as well as the people around her. Equipping her,
1: educating yeah,
2: her. I mean, exactly.
1: Well, I think her parents uh, were really determined to make sure she had the best education possible, and she was a really bright young child. And the schools in Memphis, Tennessee, were both segregated and terrible. Right after, um, you know, in the eighteen sixties and seventies, so they ended up um, sending her to the Antioch Model School in Yellow Springs, Ohio, where she lived. With a different black, black black family who basically raised her for several years while she was educated, and her mother was determined that she learned German and um, really take on you know all the arts that she could. And when she got to Oberlin College, which uh, had a history of taking women and African-Americans into the college from a very early time in the late 1830s, this this is an important moment for her because she decides she wants to take what's called the gentleman's course, which is a four-year bachelor's degree. The ladies course that white women as well were not getting four years bachelor's degrees from Oberlin, they were getting basically what we would call an associate's degree. And the fact that she wanted to study Greek and Latin was another kind of bone of contention where people said, you know, this is not what a woman should be doing. What would you do learning a language that you, you know, you can't use in any other form. It's not like a polite language like France, French where you can go to France and, you know, have a vacation or something. And she persisted in all of these things um, even at, at a time, you know, when that was unacceptable.
2: So she was quite determined. I'm sure you wondered many times as you sifted through her papers uh, what it would be like if she were born today, lived today, what she could have, I mean, she certainly accomplished a lot. What, what? Had, so what led you to the, how did you work with the papers? Just looking at what was available is overwhelming as an outsider. So how did you attack this project and, and how it's been years that you've been working on it, right? Yes. Life, yes. Life's work. Yes, exactly. This is definitely uh, well
1: over a decade uh, as a project. And um, basically, I, I think that I at some level tried to find you know, every document that i could and, and look at it and read it if, if i could I, I know that sounds crazy but you know I, I just wanted to have the the best sense of her that i could get and i especially focused at the beginning i think on her letters and diaries to get a better sense of herself the her published her her written works her speeches some of that is already published in volumes and so i had already read all of that for my chapter that i wrote on her political thought so i felt like i had a pretty good handle on her but what I didn't know as much about was her private life. And so my goal was um, to dive into that as much as I could. And um, her handwriting is truthfully, absolutely horrendous and very, very difficult to read, although I am very jealous that now the Library of Congress has mostly digitized mm-hmm. Uh, the papers that, which of course were on microfilm when I was working with them, and um, it's so much better now because you can blow up her her handwriting on the computer screen and it's much easier to read. <laughs> but at the time, you know, it was basically just trying to immerse myself in um, her life in a somewhat chronological way, you know, as much as I could. But but most of her diaries um, don't start until, or what we have uh, don't start until she's um, a young woman uh, graduated from Oberlin. So we don't have any, um, we only have letters from these earlier moments of her life.
2: Well, and, and those both together, I would, can you talk a little bit about how for somebody who might be listening to this, who isn't aware or even those of us who have delved into those kinds of papers of other people, how that allows you to stitch together a person when you can't hear their voice. It is such an amazing marvel that reading letter after letter and a diary, even if it's not at the same concurrent moment uh, of that person's life, really does provide a picture for you of them.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think one of the things that you can start to see is what are the consistent character traits? What does she care about? What is, what is she passionate about? And so, you know, the the rights of women and the rights of African-Americans and the determination to, uh, in a way she talked about it and she used the phrase representing the race, right? It's like she had achieved so much from slavery and especially her parents having been slaves um, that she wanted to prove that African Americans and women could do anything that any white person could do. And at the time, that felt like something, you know, we still have this issue today to some degree. We still have a question about representing, right? And also still have so many firsts. And so she was often the first, she was the first black woman on the board of education in DC. You know, she was the first president of the national association of colored women. Um, You know, she, she did so many things where she was the first that she had to be kind of fearless. Um, And so you see the fearlessness and the, the feistiness in her diaries and letters as she's um, going about her life and, meeting her future husband and falling in love, Um, but also she's traveling around Europe and she's living a life that's much less encumbered by race when she's there and really um, has several marriage offers from white men and um, her, the man she marries, Robert Terrell, who's Black and in America, and she decides to go back and marry him and take up the cause of working for civil rights in the United States, even though she knows it's going to be harder than it would have been if
2: she had stayed in Europe. Why do you think that is? I mean, clearly, it, it's clear that she had this mission, but, but what was that deciding factor for her? I think that it was the
1: fact that you know, she, for one thing, she really inherited a fighting spirit from her parents. And in particular, her father, Robert Church had actually been shot in the head during the Memphis massacre of 1866 um, because white rioting white mem- Memphis uh, Irish police officers uh, were basically looting and rioting and killing as many uh, freed people as possible but especially men like him who had uh, kind of challenged the uh, social order by applying for a license to open a saloon, and he was refused. But then took it to the courts and happened to win when the Congress passed uh, the Civil Rights Act. And so then uh, he won because the only reason his uh, application was rejected was because of his race. But uh, this is the example she had from early on: is somebody who survived a bullet hole to the back of his head shot. By a police officer. So when she, you know, when she grew up and became uh, an activist, she took up cases of especially young black women who were accused of murder when they um, somehow managed to kill a white man in self-defense when they were being uh, assaulted. And she did not think that that, you know, would have gained a white woman a death sentence, which is what was happening. These women were getting death penalty decisions and she would go into the jail houses, meet with these women, um, and then she would go and try to talk to the uh, governors to appeal for clemency. Um, And this is as a respectable woman who's very much interested in this notion of representing the race, it doesn't mean she's afraid of going into a prison and associating with a woman who's basically been condemned to death. Um, so she was very fearless. And I, I do think her parents gave her a pretty strong um, example of what it meant to fight
2: back against that kind of virulent racism that existed. And she right, at the moment of, it was such a, a combustible moment in time. And I can't imagine that she wouldn't have taken the path that she had um, even though she had the opportunity to live more comfortably so to speak elsewhere so how, how do you how did you stitch together this life in the end what was in the back of your mind as you were sifting tirelessly through all this documentation how did you you know that that's always the, the big challenge, and I know it's a very hard thing to reduce to a soundbite, but I'm going to ask you anyway, especially since you're teaching while you're doing that, how, how did you approach that?
1: Well, if you're talking about the narrative arc and how I decided to stitch it together, part of it was actually by looking at what had been written about her, especially in young adult and children's biographies, of which there are many. So there were no uh, that were written for adults. But bizarrely enough, there's a huge number that are written for kids. And the uh, narrative arc is all the same. It's that, okay, she's uh, born into somewhat difficult circumstances, her parents uh, become prosperous, Uh, she gets this education, she's The model of respectability and uplift politics with the club women, uh, you know, for black women in at the turn of the century, and then this very respectable woman uh, becomes radicalized in very old age when she's in her 80s, and participates in picketing and boycotting and even lawsuits against um, segregated stores and restaurants in DC, which she actually wins a United States Supreme Court case in um, 1953, the year before Brown. And we don't know about it mainly because it only affected uh, Washington, DC. Um, so because it, it had no national implications really, um, it's not as well known obviously as something like Brown v. Board. But the point of this is that I don't agree with that uh, storyline and arc at all, because what I was finding in um, looking through all this documentation is that she had been this direct action militant from much, much earlier in her life. So seeing her um, marching in the uh, women's suffrage parade in 1913 refusing to be segregated along with many, many other black women who all insisted on taking their places um, as the parade was laid out. It had sections for nurses or teachers or edu- you know, whatever the different categories were. They just entered in and went to those categories. We only know the story of Ida B. Wells inserting herself into the Illinois delegation but that's not the only story at all. Um, And of course it was Mary Church Terrell who argued on behalf of the Delta Sigma Theta sorority which was a brand new Howard University sorority for these young black women that they deserved a place with the, uh, and she argued with Alice Paul, that they deserved a place with the um, college women, which they did in fact end up marching with them. And so seeing her do that, and then seeing her being one of the few documented examples that we have of black women uh, picketing the White House with the National Women's Party during World War One, She brought her teenage daughter and they would uh, stand there together even in the freezing cold. And that determination is certainly not something she came to late in life. So in every... Um, Decade of her life, I could fi- her adult life. I could find examples like that, which made it uh, clear that I had a different story to tell, and that's why I called it unceasing militant, because. Paul Robeson, that's the phrase that he used to describe her when he was talking about her in a eulogy after she passed away in 1954 at age 90. And he was commending her for having worked for so many years with that kind of unceasing militancy. Um, And he and she had worked together on a whole variety of cases involving um, the rights of black women in unions who were trying to uh, both advocate for better conditions, but also one of the things that happened in the 40s is that they were uh, refusing to sign anti-communist pledges, right? so that it gets tied up with um, how workers were being bullied into disavowing um, any kind of connection to the communist party or else their unions were being um, uh, kind of devalued or, or Cut off from negotiating with the with the companies, et cetera. So, um, so that's the work that she was doing, and that's why he was so appreciative of hers. That she brought herself into these more radical movements, wasn't afraid to be associated with the Communist Party, even at a point when um, they were being uh, vilified. But she never became a communist. She wasn't a communist, Um, but she did ally herself with and work with uh, a whole variety of people who were in the communist party.
2: By the time she died, did she feel she'd accomplished anything? Or did she feel, how, I mean, that that's such a pivotal, pivotal moment in that history, obviously, when when she passed away in the 50s. Yeah, I
1: think that she was gratified by what she saw happen after the end of World War II. So, that, you know, what we consider in a way, if, whether it's the mid 50s or uh, if you started a little bit earlier after World War II, that's what we might consider the kind of mainstream civil rights movement. And so, what she appreciated was that the causes that she'd been working for for so long were actually being taken up by far larger numbers of people. So what she sees at the end of her life is the movement generating attention and support in ways that she hadn't seen earlier. So her type of activism, right, this militancy, the picketing, the boycotting, the lawsuits, that's not new. But what's new is that it's gaining traction and that they're succeeding in getting people to both protest and when the cases go to court, they're winning, right? So this is a big difference. And so she's definitely pleased with this shift that she sees. Um she's always regretting the fact that as you pointed out if she had been alive in a different era she might have done so much more and she was highly political and uh was a strong member of the republican party in the idea you have to remember going back to the notion of the party of lincoln republicans she was very much a republican um for most of her life and she helped many People uh, run for president, and you know she so she campaigned for the presidents uh, in the rep- Republican nominees. But then she also helped people run for Senate, and she would really have liked to be a senator. And that was something that um, she regretted that she was never able, as a black woman, she felt to run. Uh, or you know, she didn't think it was even an option really. Um, but she she did regret that those kinds of possibilities were foreclosed to her by her race and her sex.
2: Uh, a few months ago, I interviewed David Michaelis about his new book about Eleanor Roosevelt. And he said that he got some pushback from people. He spent 10 years or more working on this as well. And uh, he got pushback because he's not a woman. Uh, not to guess your race, but I'm assuming that you are not African American just by the way you look. So so did you get pushback from anyone about writing about this figure or were people just so happy that you were willing to plunge in and do this hard work that it didn't matter? Well, so far, um, I've I've had really
1: lovely and positive responses. I've worked really carefully um, on trying to immerse myself in as much African American history as possible, um, and I've been doing some of that work before I started working on uh, the specific biography, of course. And so, I've also was really grateful to have opportunities like I was a year long fellow at the. Um, Emory University's uh, James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. And um, I was fortunate to be one of 11 amazing fellows. I was the only white fellow and really had a chance to immerse myself with these fabulous scholars um, just trying to talk through a lot of these issues. And so um, I've been trying to be as open and um, sensitive as possible to all of these issues about what does it mean um I definitely don't believe that you know only a man can <laughs> write about men's history or only a woman can write about women's history or only um, a white person can write about white people's history or whatever it would be right like that I don't think that's true so um but then also um I've really tried hard to vet my work with my friends and colleagues and make sure along the way that I was getting a lot of feedback and um, being really open to, to feedback and making sure that I was trying to be as sensitive as possible to telling her story. And so that's how I tried to uh,
2: resolve that. But fortunately, it seems like it's worked out OK. <laughs> and it's interesting because now you will forever be associated with bringing her yeah. to this point in history hopefully i mean do you do you imagine um, what would come next what other scholars or uh, both official scholars or pikers like me who are wannabe scholars would would mind through now that you've given us the book that you've given us i mean there're probably a thousand permutations of her life but especially since it was so long but i wonder if you've thought about that while you were doing it if there were the offshoots and the next steps.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, one thing um, that's true is that I have a lot of chapters that I didn't even include in the book because I couldn't possibly, you know, unless I had made it a lot bigger and I was trying to keep it at a more accessible size. Um, And so I think I've already talked to a, a lot of graduate students and other people, you know, who've said, oh, this makes me want to do more on this part of her life. Because some things that I could happily have written an entire chapter about, I had to write a sentence about. Um, So, you know, it's kind of a shocking, uh, I feel bad about that in some ways. But um, she lived for so long and was active in multiple organizations in every single decade of her adult life. So it was, um, you know, I did have to make choices. (laughs) And I hope
0: that it's and that it's a starting place for lots of people. That's Allison M. Parker, author of the new book, Unceasing Militant, The Life of Mary Church Terrell. You can hear more about bio on our website, (music) biographersinternational.org. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. Sheree Newman is our podcast editor. I'm Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Bio.